This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Caron speaks with Professor Nicola Petit and Professor Simonetta Vetsoso about the European Commission's latest clampdown on Google for anti-competitive practices. So we know little of the evidence adduced by the Commission in this decision because we don't have the decision. I mean, we have some legal issues from the economic perspective. There are many questions, many interesting questions. But I think really this case depends on the evidence the Commission was able to collect. Here's Caron Beaton-Wells. In its battle with big tech, you might say it's Brussels 2, Google 0. In Episode 7 of Competition Law, I talked with Professor Pinar Uckman about the infamous shopping case in which the European Commission imposed a 2.4 billion euro fine on the search giant. Just over a year later, the world's media was reassembled in the Commission press room, awaiting what was anticipated to be yet another mega decision against the powerhouse tech company. A hush fell over the room. Today, the Commission has decided to fine Google 4.34 billion euros for breaching EU antitrust rules. Google has engaged in illegal practices to cement its dominant market position in Internet search. It must put an effective end to this contact within 90 days or face penalty payments. As the rather formidable Danish commissioner went on to explain, the decision against Google relates to its hugely popular and pervasive mobile operating system, Android. Okay, quick sidebar. As an Apple iPhone user, I've always been bewildered by the name Android. And just in case any of you are in the same boat, I can now share, courtesy of Google Search, of course, that the operating system is named after its developer, Andrew Rubin, whose nickname was Android, meaning a robot that looks like a human. Andrew, Andy, Droid, got it? If some of you are having visions of Star Wars, I'm with you there too. But back to Brussels. What had Google been doing with Android? that had the competition agency tying, no pun intended, itself in knots. Our case is about three types of restrictions that Google has imposed on mobile device manufacturers and network operators to ensure that traffic goes to Google search. First, Google has required manufacturers to pre-install the Google search and browser apps on devices running on the Android mobile operating system. Manufacturers had to do this if they wanted to be able to sell devices with the Google App Store. Second, Google paid manufacturers and network operators to make sure that only the Google search app was pre-installed on such devices. Third, Google has obstructed the development of competing mobile operating systems. These could have provided a platform for rival search engines to gain traffic. In this way, Google has used Android as a vehicle to cement its dominance as a search engine. 
These practices, they have denied rivals a chance to innovate and to compete on the merits. They have denied European consumers the benefit of effective competition in the very important mobile sphere. Even while we await publication of full reasons, the five-page press release announcing the decision has sparked a barrage of commentary, and there's furious disagreement amongst commentators, both as to its analysis and as to the implications of the decision. To get a sense of where some of the key areas of disagreement lie, we're lucky to have with us two expert commentators, Professor Simonetta Vetsozo and Professor Nicola Petit. For some onlookers, of whom Nicola is clearly one, the Android story is a good story, a story of competition and of innovation, bringing enormous benefits in cost and choice for Android phone consumers. Android's OS, as developed by Google, has basically introduced massive competition in a market which was entrenched around one player, which is basically Apple. Even if it's not like completely open or partially closed, it remains that this has introduced a lot of competition, increasing outputs, steady declines in quality adjusted prices in the smartphone industry. Nothing that looks like monopoly conduct. Nicola explained that anticipating the exponential growth of mobile internet and a shift away from desktop from the mid-2000s, Google took on Microsoft and it took on Apple. And the results speak for themselves. Android now represents more than 80% of the world's smartphone devices. What's more, it went about it in a really clever way. It made Android open source, freely available online, rather than proprietary, like its rival Apple. Only Apple can use the Apple operating system, iOS, on its iPhones. So Google decided to give Android away. But wait, last time I looked, Google wasn't in the charity business. And as ever with such free business models, the trick is to find a, a money side where costly investments in a product and research development can be recouped with a reasonable profit. So the difficult challenge back in the day for Google was how to monetize the Android platform and cover past and ongoing investments into the service. So what they came up with is they sort of thought, well, you know, why not create a link with the activities and properties that we have where monetization can take place? And they did that basically by creating bridges for Android users to travel to other services where Google can make profits, which are Search and Chrome. Google monetized its investment in the operating system for Android by creating bridges, as Nicola called them, or ties, as the commission saw them, from Android to the bundle of software applications that are ubiquitous on Android phones, the Google Search app, Chrome browser, and its app store, Google Play. Remember that enabled by its treasure trove of data it collects from users, it's through online advertising on its search engine that Google earns billions in revenue. And its return from the App Store is not too shabby either. Whenever a user buys a paid game or application from Google Play, Google keeps a percentage of the money, and the rest is paid to the developer. Again, 
revenue is in the realm of billions. The outcome of its strategy was celebrated by the Google CEO at an annual developer conference in 2017, a conference perhaps ironically called Innovation in the Open. Referring to the massive scale of users now enjoying Google products, Sundar Pichai told us this. So the scale of these products are amazing, but they're all still working up their way towards Android, which I'm excited as of this week, we crossed over 2 billion active devices of Android. As you can see, the, the robot is pretty happy too behind me. So, But is Google Android all good news? Not just for Google, but for us as consumers too. For others like Simonetta, even if Google gives each version of its source code a cute confectionery name, donut, cupcake, jelly bean, to name a few, that's mere sugarcoating. The restrictions that pervade the use of Android by phone makers and network operators mean it's effectively locked down in a Google-controlled ecosystem. In practice, the door to Android can only be opened with an elaborate and costly set of keys. Oh, Simonetta agrees Android's been a boon for consumers. But she also shares some of the Commission's reservations about what the Google Android strategy will mean for competition in the long run. Google and Apple joined forces, okay, again, Microsoft in many respects, and they were very successful in doing that, <laughs> as we uh, all can see. So definitely wonderful idea. I mean, I don't think the Commission is questioning it. I mean, not at all. And also the fact that it's not that everyone is able to afford an iPhone. <laughs> so Android are much more available, uh, much cheaper. It's a wonderful for consumers. The thing is, and I think this is the big issue here and the core issue of the Commission, is how Google exercises the control over the platform. In some instances, according to the Commission, it has been blocking competition and innovation to create a sort of moat around its castle. And the castle is, of course, the search engine. Google's search engine is still the main source of income for Google, like 80 billion euros from adverts per year, which is not bad. So according to the commission, there were three practices, and they were all part of a complex strategy to cement that dominance of Google search engine. Now, few would quibble with the proposition that with some 90% market share, Google is dominant in a market for general search, assuming there is such a market. But there were other markets in which the European Commission said Google was dominant. And this is where we start to get to some of the controversy. The Brussels agency defined markets for mobile operating systems and app stores in a way that meant, in its view, Google doesn't compete with Apple in these markets, at least not from the perspective of phone makers. Now, some consumers might well see Apple and Android phones as alternatives, despite the higher price tag for the iPhone. But for phone makers, they're not alternatives. Samsung can't use the Apple operating system. Only Apple can, remember? And the same goes for Apple apps, which go hand-in-hand with the operating system. So take Apple out of the analytical picture, 
And we're left with more and more markets in which Google is dominant. And these were significant for the case. But hang on a minute. Doesn't Google compete with Apple? Well, Nicola says the European Commission has missed the forest of competition for the tree of monopoly. And how is saying that there's a licensable OS for smartphones markets is a sort of nuts idea when you look at the swathes of competition that takes place between Apple and, and Google and other actually tech giants like you know Amazon with the Kindle Fire tablet and other players. Now, the problem with market depth is basically that it provides a very convenient tool to categorize any and every company as a monopoly. So for instance, I'm free to say things like Airbus is a monopolist in the market for double-deck aircrafts because it is the only manufacturer with a double-deck aircraft and to say that Boeing is not a competitor. And so that's completely preposterous and stupid, of course. And if you play cleverly or if you play the market depth game with an outcome, which is basically to try to find a theory of liability and maybe come up with a fine, you can be sort of biased towards market definition, which facilitates your case. If Nicola is right about this, then some might say the commission favors the Apple business model over the Android one a closed model over an open one. Or perhaps it just thinks Google has made enough money. I'm going to quote here what the commission says. The commission says Google would still have benefited from a sufficient stream of revenue from search advertising. And I mean, you know, this is really the first time I see a statement from an agency that a firm makes enough revenue. It's a bit like the IRS. You know, you're making too much revenue, but here... Unlike the IRS, there's like sort of total discretion. You've made enough revenue, you know, no need for more. I think there is clearly here a sort of, you know, business model lack of neutrality in terms of the antitrust consequences. It is illogical that the commission sort of increases the returns to closed, vertically integrated organizations by basically creating a zone of antitrust immunity for them because you don't license, so you are not contracting, so there's no exchange, so there's no market. This is really weird. Nicola may have a point here, but then again, Brussels might be coming after Apple next. And on another view, it is quite possible the case is not about Google's choice of business model in mobile internet, a choice between open source or vertically integrated. As Margaret Vesicher was at pains to point out. Well, one of the things always praised about Android is that it's open source. And open source is obviously for, for anyone, uh, if you have the skills, not me. Because this is not a judgment about business models or business ideas. This is a judgment to say, well, let's open up for a competition. And Simonetto agrees. The commission decision is not challenging the business model that uh, Google has chosen for Android as such. So, I mean, it's not really at the core of the case at all. Finding Google to be dominant is only the start of the story. Bearing in mind being dominant doesn't mean breaking the law. There has to be an abuse. So how did Brussels get from point A, dominance, to point B, abuse? First... That's because Google's practices have denied rival search engines the possibility to compete on the merits. They made sure 
that Google search engine is pre-installed on practically all Android devices, which is an advantage that cannot be matched. Furthermore, Google's practices also harm competition and further innovation in the wider mobile space beyond just internet search. And that's because they prevented other mobile browsers from competing effectively with the pre-installed Google Chrome browser. Nicola explained that the Commission's reasoning harks back to the cases brought against Microsoft in the 1990s for tying its desktop operating system to its web browser, Internet Explorer, and other products like Windows Media Player. And the theory of liability advanced by the European Commission is that even though there's no real coercion, users can download other browsers, other search engines, they can use others. There is a bias for the product you're supplied in the first place with, which means that a lot of people would be too lazy to actually go for a better and competing products. This is what the European Commission calls end-user inertia. So a lot of that language, pre-installation, end-user inertia, uh, kicks in the press release to suggest that the European Commission basically played on velvet, replicating the kind of intellectual analysis developed in the previous Microsoft cases. So we all have a status quo bias. But if that is indeed the case, Google's hardly the only company to take advantage. The query is whether this type of finding should apply across the board to other platforms and other services, Google Street View or Google Maps, but you could think of Amazon Alexa or other types of platforms where such biases may also kick in. What's more, it's important to understand that pre-installation required phone makers to show Google's apps to users first, not to stop them from allowing other apps to be downloaded. As some might say, competition is only a click away. Now, this is really less coercive and conducive to foreclosure as a fact than a contractual exclusivity obligation or option. And the question is whether the European Commission in the decision has adjusted the onus of evidence, which should be higher on it, to take account of the fact that as compared to the sort of old-style exclusivity requirement that we see in cases like Intel or Hoffman-LaRoche, the European Commission has discharged a higher burden of proof to actually address the lesser coercion involved in these technological pre-installation settings. We also just don't know whether consumers who don't choose to download alternatives in fact don't do so because they like the Google offerings. Is there a strong preference for Google search over Bing, for example? No doubt we'll all have a view on that, at least those of us who've tried Bing. But as Simonetta points out... I think this is really a question that could only be answered looking at the evidence that the Commission was able to collect. And of course, in the press release, there was the mentioning of the uh, users of the 
now defunct uh, Microsoft uh, mobile device, and those were too lazy to download uh, the Google search that they liked. So they were doing all those searches on Bing. You might recall the Commission wasn't only concerned about Google's tying behaviour. The third practice Google has put in place prevents device manufacturers from using any alternative version of Android that was not approved by Google. If manufacturers produced even a single device based on an Android fork, they lose the right to sell any device with Google Play Store or the Google Search app. And this is how Google restricts the opportunity and incentive for others to develop Android forks in a way that is not open to all. Google is entitled to set technical requirements to ensure that functionality and apps within its own Android ecosystem runs smoothly. But these technical requirements cannot serve as a smokescreen to prevent the development of competing Android's ecosystems. Google cannot have its cake and eat it. The Commission gave short shrift to Google's defence that the forking restrictions, so-called anti-fragmentation measures, were necessary to prevent technical failures. Well, we all know how annoying technical glitches can be. The Commission was far more worried that the restrictions were preventing large manufacturers from developing alternative operating systems and app developers from getting their apps distributed in various ways. But how persuasive are these arguments? Again, differences of opinion are the order of the day. The European Commission in its press releases says that Google's conduct prevented Amazon from developing a forked operating system for its Fire Phone. There's a sort of suggestion that Google's conduct precipitated the demise of Amazon's effort to provide forked software and hardware competing with Google's platform, which clearly you don't see when you move to the tablet market, which is completely the country where you actually see the Amazon devices being the best sellers in the industry. What I'm meaning here is what we're seeing in the tablet world is that you can see a very prominent device rise in spite of the contractual restrictions imposed by Google. One of the things is, of course, we are talking here of Amazon, but let's imagine a smaller undertaking which has been producing a nice fork of the Android code and then approaches a device manufacturer and asking, yes, what about producing something for me? The device manufacturer would say, well, sorry, I can't do that because of the ban on forking, because of the compatibility restrictions that I have in that contract, part of the web. So it really depends on the case. Of course, we have those levels of competition between the tech giants. But the question is, is it enough? Should we only concentrate on that? Or should we look at actually what I would call the consumer welfare? So the possibility within an ecosystem also for the consumers to have most of the choice available innovation and competition. So I, one doesn't exclude the other, but I would say there are different perspectives, but it might be wrong. And here we start getting into questions that lie at the heart of every competition law inquiry. Just who are we trying to protect and how do we go about it most effectively? 
I don't disagree with what Simita thinks, but my ambition for consumption policy would be that we go for the big fish, not the small fish. So micromanaging platforms doesn't seem to me to be the sort of social mandates that we've entrusted to policymakers when we've decided to set in rules of quasi-constitutional status uh, in Europe. Sorry for interrupting you, but the big fish can become the big fish later. I mean, and that's, of course, you don't know. You, I mean, you have to focus also on the small fish. But you don't want uh, conscient policy to be run on half-baked Nostradamusque speculations that it's going to pan out badly in five years, especially when the orders of magnitude and the first level evidence that you have denotes exactly the contrary. So you're seeing companies which invest between 18 and 26% of their turnover into research and development. You're seeing companies which basically launch products at a pace that is unprecedented. So let, let's let the kids play and then uh, we will see and then the consumers will win out. Of course, I mean, definitely you should uh, help innovation. But the thing is, you shouldn't just concentrate on those big tech companies investing. You have to look also for other undertakings in the market on other sides of the market. So a multi-sided view of innovation and looking at their incentives to innovate. Look at them as well. And of course, in that respect, I think that the competition authority in Europe and I mean, the European Commission and other smaller ones are much more careful that those areas in which you can have the innovation also from the bottom are there, are open. So you have that possibility. And in that respect, I think there is a difference in the approach, but perhaps in the US is going to change. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, uh... The uh, European agencies are more ready to experiment in those fields than maybe the American agency, and that may be due to a softer adherence to the consumer welfare standard or adherence to the consumer welfare standard, but with some tweaks, whereas in the US, there's really strict adherence to the standards. I think the European agencies have less, and policymakers more generally, have less qualms entering into distributional concerns. And the third point that I want to say is I think the Europeans are more manichaean. They are more, they see the world more as black and white between big firms and small firms, big fish and small fish. Whoa. So here we start getting back into that debate about a US-EU divide on how to deal with powerful companies, big tech especially. Back to the case at hand. Google, for its part, wasted no time in deciding to appeal. The fine? Well, that's not worth much more than 16 days of the company's revenue. So enough said perhaps about that. But what about the remedy that requires Google to put an end to its restrictive practices? How will Google respond? And what will that mean for Android phone makers and the prices they charge us as consumers? These were questions being asked within hours of the Brussels bombshell being dropped. What about, as Google has always said, that it isn't at fault here, and notably they've said, look, if you force us to change our business practices, we might not be able to allow our operating system to remain free. Could that take away any element of competitiveness there and consumer benefit? 
So maybe Google will need to make some changes to the way in which Android is monetized. And maybe, contrary to the dire predictions of some, that will be good for competition and consumers. Maybe we will find even more apps on our phone. Maybe we'll actually try them out. Maybe new operating systems will emerge. On those questions, like so many aspects of this case, we can only crystal ball gaze. But there was at least one thing on which Simonetta and Nicola could agree. So we know little of the evidence adduced by the Commission in this decision because we don't have the decision. I mean, we have some legal issues from the economic perspective. There are many questions, many interesting questions. But I think really this case depends on the evidence the Commission was able to collect. I'm not saying the Commission is right. I need need to read the decision and to look at the evidence. To be sure, it won't just be commentators studying the evidence. Other competition agencies will be studying it too. And ultimately, it will be years before we really know the final scorecard on the ever-intriguing and all-important battle between Brussels and big tech. Next on Competition Law, we stop talking about what's going on in Europe and move somewhere very different, China. I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague from the University of Melbourne Law School, Dr. Wendy Ning, who's got some fascinating things to say about how Chinese competition law and the Chinese antitrust authorities are likely to see issues in the digital economy. Until then, You can find links about the Android case and some of Nicola and Simonetta's writing about it and related work in the show notes. And as always, all of our other episodes and links at competitionlawlore.com. Please do share the podcast with others, and uh, particularly if they're on Android, as, believe it or not, Google's yet to really challenge Apple's dominance in the podcasting market. Competition Law was produced by written and recorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton Wells. Mm-hmm.